Hello again. I do want to welcome you back to Bible Studies with Russ as we continue looking at uh, how we got the Bible. Uh, when we finished last time, we were going to begin looking at today uh, some of these other letters. We talked about how there were some books that were not included in the canon. And so we're going to be looking at some of those uh, today, beginning first with the uh, the letter from Elijah that's mentioned in Second Chronicles chapter 21, verses 12 uh, through 15. Well, notice here in Second Chronicles 12 through uh, 15 that this book, book is mentioned. Uh, this is a public prophetic exhortation. It had divine authority and thereby qualified for the canon, but as a matter of fact, the letter is in the canon. The letter is included as part of the text in 2 Chronicles 12, 12-15. Because it is in the canon, it poses no difficulty. And so it is uh, included at least in part. And again, I'm reading this again from uh, much of what we're talking about today from the uh, book by Geisler and Nix on a inter- introduction to the Bible, a general introduction to the Bible. And next we notice here the records of Shimei the prophet. It's mentioned in 2 Chronicles 12 and verse 15. Uh, this book uh, was definitely written by a prophet, and it seems certain it is not identical to any of the existing books in the Old Testament. However, it is possible that the book, uh, though written by a prophet, was not prophetic. It is called a record. Perhaps it was a genealogical, uh, genealogical enrollment without any implied or steady religious instruction or exhortation. In that respect, it is unlike the the canonical books of Chronicles, and even when the genealogical sections uh, contain religious instructions and redemptive materials, such as the uh, messianic lineage, as we find in First Chronicles five twenty five and First uh, Chronicles nine verse one, and also verse twenty two. And so it is likely that for uh, the reasons uh, mentioned here that the records that are recorded here are just something that records of various things. And so it was not included in the canon. Next you have the Chronicles of Samuel, Nathan the prophet, and Gad the seer. That's mentioned in First Chronicles 29 verse 29. These books correspond to First and Second Samuel and their uh, content and coverage. Thus, it is possible that if their contents were prophetic, they are contained within the confines of the canonical books and First and Second, uh, first and second Samuel. On the other hand, they may have been uh, they may have been mere uninspired records kept by these public servants and used later, uh, used later rather as a factual basis for the inspired books of Samuel. Then you have the book entitled "The Vision of Isaiah the Prophet," which meant, which is, which is uh, mentioned here in Second Chronicles thirty-two, and verse thirty-two. This is an inspired. This is a inspired writing, but is possible the same as the canonical book of Isaiah, which was collected within a larger corpus called the Book of the Kings of Judah and Israel, which we find in uh, verse thirty-two of Second Chronicles thirty-two. You can also look at it in Second Chronicles thirty-three and verse eighteen. Then you have the many accounts referred to by Luke. Luke said many have undertaken to compile an account of Jesus' life, Luke 1 verse 1. There are two possible explanations for this comment. First, if Matthew and Mark and even John wrote before Luke, they could be the many others to whom Luke refers. The Greek word many can mean as few as two or three. On the other hand, even other gospel accounts are, are, in, a, are, in, are in view. Uh, these other records may not may not have been prophetic. That is, it is possible they were not offered by an accredited prophet as a message from God for his people. 
Thus, being non-prophetic by nature, they would, be not, they would not be candidates to be included in the canon of Scripture. And then you have the so-called real 1 Corinthians, as it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 9. This book, for some, poses a more serious threat to the theory that all truly prophetic writings are in the present canon of Scripture. For, for it was definitely written by an accredited apostle, which is Paul, and it did contain religious instruction and exhortation. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 13. Hence, either this is called real 1 Corinthians, this so-called real 1 Corinthians must be contained within one of the existing books of the Bible, or else the theory fails. And so there are two possibilities for identifying the book to which Paul refers uh, with an existing book of the Bible. First, he may be referring to part of the present 2 Corinthians, uh, for example, chapters 10 through 13, which was put together with another part of his Corinthian correspondence at a later time. 2 Corinthians chapters, verses 1 through 9, is definitely different in tone from, from the rest of the present books, <coughs> as we see in chapters 10 through 13, which can indicate that it was originally written on a different occasion. Second, there's also the possibility that Paul is referring to the present 1 Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. That is, to the very book he was then writing. It is true that he uses an aorist tense here, which could be translated, I wrote, thus identifying some previous letter. But the aorist tense could refer uh, to the book at hand, such as such a device is called an obligatory aorist, which, uh, because it refers to the very, very epistle to which it is being used. Although the aorist tense could be translated, I wrote, the aorist tense in Greek is not a past tense as such. The Greek aorist tense has primary reference to the kind of action, not the time of action it portrays. It identifies a complete, uh, completed action that, may, have, that may, may even require a long time to accomplish. Uh, so we find cross-reference there in, second, in John 2, verse 20. Thus, Paul could be saying something like this, I am now decisively writing to you. That would, be, that would certainly fit the urgency of his message in the context. Further, the same epistatory, uh, uh, I'm mispronouncing that, use of the heiress is found elsewhere in this first letter, in this very first letter, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 15. Moreover, there is no indication from the early history of the church that any such letter, other than the existing 1 Corinthians, ever existed. The reference to Paul's enemies in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10, need to be taken need not to be taken to mean that he actually wrote many other letters to them. It may mean no more than what Paul writes is weighty. The now, as we find in the King James of 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11, need not indicate a later letter. It can be translated rather, as we also find it translated this way in the RSV, and also is translated actually in the New American Standard. In short, it is not necessary to take 1 Corinthians 5.9 as a reference to any other epistle than the present 1 Corinthians, which is in the canon. Then we have the, uh, <clears throat> the epistle to the Laodiceans. And this is the last one we'll be looking at. And this, is mentioned in first in, me, this is mentioned in Colossians 4 and verse 16. This epistle is another authoritative book. It is clear from the facts that within it, it was written by an apostle who enjoined both its reading and circulation among the churches. Colossians 4, verse 16. Hence, if this Laodicean book were not of the present 27 books in the New Testament, then a truly apostolic book would have been, exclude, been excluded in the canon. If that be so, then one would have to reject the view that all prophetic books are in the canon. However, such inclusion is not required. 
It is entirely possible that this, later, this letter is really the book of Ephesians. The following evidence may be offered in support of this idea. One, the text does not call the epistle, call it the epistle of the Laodiceans, rather it is called the letter that is coming from Laodicea, whatever it may have been named. Second, it is known that Paul, that Paul wrote Ephesians at the same time he wrote Colossians and sent it to another church in the same general area. And third, there is some evidence that the Ephesians did not originally bear that title, but was a kind of... Um, uh, uh, t- kind of letter that was intended for the churches of Asia Minor in general. As a matter of fact, some early manuscripts do not, do not have the expressions in Ephesus, as we find in Ephesians 1 verse 1, in them. It is certainly strange that Paul, who spent three years ministering to the Ephesians, Acts 20 verse 31, has no personal greetings in the book if it was intended only for them. Paul had numerous personal greetings in Romans, chapter 16, and he never, and he never ministered there prior to, to writing that epistle. In view of all those factor, factors, it makes sense to conclude that the so-called Laodicean letter is probably the canonical book of Ephesians. Now next we want to look at, as we uh, make a transition here, looking at how the canon is closed. And now we are going to look more at the canon. We are definitely not done with that. We're going to look at how the canon or the books of the Bible which we have today were discovered, uh, the methodology that was employed, the principles that were employed in that. But first, we want to understand that uh, the canon is closed. And we have here uh, really uh, three uh, terms we want us to notice here, three ideas concerning the, how the canon is closed. And that is theologically is the first one here. Theologically, the canon is closed. God has inspired only so many books, and they were all completed by the end of the apostolic period, that is the first century A.D., God used to speak through the, through the prophets of the Old Testament, but in the last days he spoke through Christ, Hebrews 1 verse 1, and the apostles whom he empowered with special signs or miracles. But because the apostolic age ended with the death of the apostles, Acts 1 verse 22, and because no one since apostolic times has had the signs of a true apostle, 2 Corinthians 12 verse 12, whereby they can raise the dead, Acts 20, verses 10 through 12, and perform other unique supernatural events, Acts 3, 1 through 10, and Acts 28, 8 and 9. It may be concluded that, that God's last days, uh, last day revelation is complete, as we find in Acts 2, 16 through 18. This does not mean that God's, uh, well, we have to realize that God still speaks to us today through the written word. Not, not in miraculous sense, but definitely through the written word. It simply means that there is no new revelation for the church. There's no new revealing. There's no new text, no new teaching that is coming. Second, we want to look at historically. Historically, the canon is closed. For there is no evidence that any such special gift of miracles has existed since the death of the apostles. The immediate immediate successors of the apostles do not claim new revelation, nor do they claim the special confirmatory gifts. In his providence, God has guided the church in the, in the preservation of all the canonical books. The canonical books are those necessary for faith and practice of believers of all generations. Think about that for a second. The canonical books, the books of the Bible which we have today, are those necessary for faith and practice of believers of all generations. Friends, there are some books, out, there are some writings out there that perhaps we just simply do not need. 
We do not need the list of things which the Apostle Paul may have left at someone's home and asking someone else to bring them to them. In fact, we find on one occasion that Paul mentions the parchments and his, his uh, I believe he mentions his cloak, that they bring those things to him. Do we need to know that? No. It just happened to be recorded because it's part of an, uh, the same letter in which Paul wrote many things concerning doctrinal matters. The canonical books, again, are those necessary for faith and practice of believers of all generation, all generations. Now, thirdly, we have the hypothetical. Hypothetically, the canon could be opened, but only hypothetically. It is theoretically possible that some written book by an accredited apostle or prophet from the first century will yet be found. Notice, not a new revelation, but one that has yet be found. Again, hypothetically. And if such a prophetic book were found, the answer to this question would depend on whether or not all prophetic books are, are, uh, are in the canon. If they are, as has been argued, then th- this newly discovered prophetic book should be added to the canon. But this is unlikely for two reasons. First, as it is historically unlikely that such a new book intended for the faith and practice of all believers be unknown to them for 2,000 years will suddenly come to light. And second, it is providentially improbable that God would have inspired but left unpreserved for two millennia what is necessary for the instruction of all, gener- all believers of all generations. The history of the word canon indicates a development from a literal rod or ruler to the concept of a standard of, for something. Subsequently, the word was applied to the rule of faith, that is, the, normal, the normative writings or authoritative scriptures, which were the standard of faith and practice. Just how that standard or canon was determined is a subject of some misunderstanding. And with that in view, we're going to be looking at uh, this subject uh, more in, here in just a few moments. And we want to begin, as we think about this, there are several insufficient views that have been suggested for um, how the Bible is determined, or how the canon was determined. One is age decided the issue, or two, that Hebrew language determined it. Three, that agreement with the Torah did. Four, religious value determined whether or not a book was canonical. Or five, the religious community, the religious community determines canonicity. All those views share one common weakness. They fail to distinguish between the determination of canonicity, a work of God, and the recognition of canonicity, a work of men. The biblical view is that inspiration determines canonicity. A book is valuable because it is inspired, and not inspired because men found it to be, value, to be of value. So let's continue by looking at how the canon was determined. We want to first begin by looking at this idea of, uh, in way of definition. Canonicity, as we've already talked about a little bit already, is determined by God. Again, a book is not inspired because men made it canonical. It is canonical because God inspired it. Canonicity is determined or established uh, or established authoritatively by God. It is, it is merely discovered by man. It is established by God, but is merely discovered by man. God determined the canon, and again, man discovered it. But how was the canon discovered? In order for man to discover which books God determined to be canonical, an appropriate method of, of an appropriate method must be destroyed must be employed rather. An appropriate method uh, must be employed. Otherwise a list of canonical books might be varied and incorrectly identified. Many procedures used in the study of the, of the canon of the Old Testament have been marred by the use of, of, of false methods. 
Several of these have been set forth uh, by Roger Beckwith, um, and I want to look at I want, I want to look at these just briefly. And he has five listed here, five particular uh, fallacies of, of method which have hitherto, uh, uh, you must say, uh, he says here, validated much writing on our theme uh, deserved to be singled out. So five fallacies he says deserved to be uh, singled out. One failure to distinguish that. that Failure to distinguish evidence that a book was known from evidence that a book was canonical. So, failure to distinguish evidence that a book was known from evidence that a book was canonical. Second, failure to distinguish disagreement about the canon between different parties from uncertainty about the canon within those parties. Third, failure to distinguish between the adding of books to the canon and the removal of books from it. Fourth, Failure to distinguish between the canon which the community recognized and used and the eccentric views of, of individuals about it. And, and fifth, and la- lastly here, he says, Failure to make proper use of Jewish evidence about the canon transmitted through the Christ- through Christian hands, whether by denying its Jewish or- 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 uh, or- origins or by ignoring the Christian medium through which it has come. So let's look at some principles involved. Let's look at what was the book written by a prophet of God. As we think about some principles involved to determine the canon, we want to think about some uh, some of these things, some of the principles that were involved. And the first one we have here is, was the book written by a prophet of God? Was a book written by the prophet of God? And we're going to look at this one, and then we're going we're gonna to stop for our time together today. The most basic question asked about a book was, is it prophetic? As it was discussed before, uh, a book being written by a prophet determined if it was part of the canon. If it was written by a spokesman for God, then it was the word of God. A prophet, remember, a prophet was the mouthpiece of God. By his very calling, a prophet was one who felt as did Amos, as we find in Amos 3 verse 8, the Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? In view of the nature of religious exhortation by a prophet is by a prophet it is reasonable to conclude that whatever is written by a prophet of God is the word of God. In most cases is it is simply a matter of establishing the authorship of the book. Uh, if it was written by an apostle or prophet, the prophetic principle, then then its place in the canon is secured. Therefore any historical or stylistic that is external or internal internal evidence that supports the genuineness of a prophetic book is also an argument for its canonicity. Uh, this was exactly the argument Paul used in, in the support of his epistle to the Galatians, Galatians 1, 1 through 24. He argued that his message was authoritative because it was authorized because he was an authorized messenger of God, Galatians 1 verse 1. He also turned the tables on his opponents who preached a different gospel, Galatians 1, verses 6 and 7. He also, his opponents' uh, gospel could not be true because they were false brethren, Galatians 2, verse 4. It should also be noted that in this connection that occasionally the Bible contains true prophecies from individuals whose status as men of God is questionable, such as Balaam, Numbers 24, 17, and Caiaphas, John eleven forty nine. However, granted that their prophecies were, were uh, consciously given, these prophets were not writ- were not writers of Bible books, but merely quoted but, but were merely quoted by the actual writer. Therefore, their utterances are in the same category as the Greek poets quoted by the Apostle Paul. As we find in Acts seventeen twenty eight, 
1 Corinthians 15:33 and Titus 1 and verse 2. Okay, we're going to stop there today. When we come back next time, we're going to continue looking at the discovery and recognition of the canon, looking at uh, these methods, or the rather these principles employed. We'll pick up next time by looking at, was the, writer con- was the writer confirmed by acts of God? And so we'll pick up there next time. I do hope you've enjoyed this Bible study. hope you are encouraged by this study of looking at how we got the Bible. I hope to see you again next time.